This is May 24th, 2020. And uh, I'm going to uh, apply a, uh, a principle that I think I've mentioned in a, in a taste show not long ago, which is uh, to pay less attention to news and more attention to history. <clears throat> We can, uh, we can develop a whole new perspective by looking back at what has happened before us. And, and especially if we look way back, um, there is a book that some of you, maybe m many of you may be familiar with called Sapiens. It came out about 10 years ago, became an international bestseller. Uh, it's written by a, a young is Israeli historian uh, by the name of uh, Harari. And uh, I'm reading here from a review. I haven't read the book. It's one of many that I haven't found time yet to read. Um, but I did read a review of it. <laughs> Are, are more of a more of a profile of the author Harari than a review of the book, but it does say at the beginning that uh, readers were offered the vertiginous pleasure of acquiring apparent mastery of all human affairs, evolution, agriculture, economics, while watching their personal narratives, even their national narratives, shrink to a point of invisibility. <clears throat> um, this is what history can offer us is to get a, a broader perspective on what's going on right now. And there's a lot going on right now. It's a, it's kind of a, a 30,000 foot view. And uh, what seems so, what can seem so distressing uh, in current events, can uh, can be put in its place. Its place meaning the the big picture. <clears throat> That's actually the the name of this review, the really big picture. The and uh, the subtitle it says uh, Harari. Uh, the author of Sapiens suggests that many of our political struggles barely matter. At the end of this quite long profile of the author, and this is from uh, the New Yorker magazine um, of uh, February 17th and 24th of this year, maybe the, uh, the New Yorker could see what was coming. Um, at the end of the profile, uh, the author of the article, not Harari, uh, quotes a, a woman, <clears throat> a Ukrainian news photographer, uh, as follows. Uh, first, she found sapiens overwhelming 
particularly in its passages on prehistory and in its larger revelation that she was, <clears throat> quote, one of the billions and billions that lived and didn't make any impact and didn't leave any trace. Upon finishing the book, this Ukrainian woman said, you kind of relax, don't feel this pressure anymore. It's okay to be insignificant. For her, the discovery of sapiens is that life is big, but only for me. This knowledge lets me own my life. I hope that, uh, that some of you can relate to this. I can. It, it, uh, again, the big view, the high altitude view of what we're going through. <coughs> There's a passage in the, uh, one of the uh, great Mahayana sutras, uh, the Shurangama Sutra, uh, and it goes as follows. Swiftly flowing water, when viewed from afar, appears still. Whenever I read that, I think of uh, flying over Niagara Falls and looking down and seeing just this white, little white smudge. And so, in the spirit of this high altitude view, uh, I thought it might be helpful to, for me to read from... Um, an overview of pandemics. <clears throat> I know I did this very briefly in one of my podcasts uh, about three weeks ago. Uh, this fleshes it out more. Uh, and this is also from the New Yorker uh, of uh, April 6th of this year. And uh, the title of the, of the article is, is The Spread, How Pandemics Shape Human History. And it's by Elizabeth Colbert. <coughs> and of course, I'll just be plucking little bits out of this in, a, in, a, in hopes of presenting, again, the big view, uh, in hopes that uh, that will help people uh, put things in perspective and hopefully relax a little bit about what we're going through. She starts off, what's often referred to as the first pandemic began in the city of Pelusium uh, in northeastern Egypt in the year 541. So she's going to be uh, chronicling the, the, the big pandemics. <clears throat> so the first one, 541, uh, it went from northeastern Egypt um, it spread both west toward Alexandria and east toward Palestine. The earliest symptom of the pestilence was fever. One observer said uh, it was so mild that it did not afford any suspicion of danger. But within a few days, victims developed the classic symptoms of bubonic plague, 
lumps in their groin and under their arms. The suffering at that point was terrible. Some people went into a coma, others into violent delirium. Many vomited blood. Those who attended to the sick, quote, were in a state of constant exhaustion. <clears throat> this observer wrote, For this reason, everybody pitied them, that is, the doctors, no less than the sufferers. No one could predict who was going to perish and who would pull through. The very next year, 542, <clears throat> the plague struck Constantinople, which was at that time the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire, led by the Emperor Justinian, who was uh, described as one of the good Roman emperors. He did a lot of, a lot of good. Uh, uh, she writes, the, the author of the article writes, that as the plague raged, uh, it fell to Justinian to make provision for the trouble. That's in the words of the, the historian. The emperor paid for the bodies of the abandoned and the destitute to be buried. Even so, it was impossible to keep up. The death toll was too high. This uh, observer at the time thought it reached more than 10,000 a day, though no one is sure if this is accurate. Another contemporary of Justinian's wrote that nobody would go out of doors without a tag upon which his name was written in case he was suddenly stricken. Eventually, bodies were just tossed into fortifications at the edge of the city. Colbert continues, The plague hit the powerless and the powerful alike. Justinian himself contracted it. Among the lucky, he survived. But his rule never really fully recovered. In the years leading up to that, when it, when it hit Constantinople in 542, uh, Justinian's generals had reconquered much of the western part of the Roman Empire from the Goths, the Vandals, and other assorted barbarians. After that year, when it hit Constantinople 542, the emperor struggled to recruit soldiers and to pay them. The territories that his generals had subdued began to revolt, the plague reached the city of Rome in 543 and seems to have made it all the way to Britain by 544. This was, uh, you know, before airplanes were uh, conveying passengers all over the place as they were this year in January and February and March. It broke out again in Constantinople in 558, a third time in 573, and yet again in 586. And it didn't burn itself out until 750, so that's almost uh, 200 years that it went on and off in, uh, in the old world. She, then she writes, just as there are many ways for microbes to infect a body, there are many ways for epidemics to play out in the body politic. And this, by the way, is, is what fascinates me more than anything, is, is uh, 
the repercussions of this um, pandemic uh, in the world of politics and economics and social justice uh, and so forth. This, it's, it's, I have to say it's exciting. It's exciting to think what this could all uh, lead to and, and just the not knowing, the mystery of it all. I mean, it may be terrible or it may be wonderful and likely be both, mixture of both. She continues, epidemics can be short-lived or protracted or like the Justinian plague, recurrent. Often they partner with war. Sometimes the pairing favors the aggressor, sometimes the aggressed. Epidemic diseases can become endemic, which is, which is to say constantly present, only to become epidemic again when they're carried to a new region or when conditions change. Does any of this sound familiar? And then she brings in smallpox, uh, which may have killed, she says, more than a billion people before it was eradicated in the mid-20th century. No one knows exactly where it originated, smallpox, but the virus is believed to have first infected humans around the time that people began domesticating animals. And that's a whole other topic, uh, is our wrong relationship with animals and uh, how that is a, is a factor in these pandemics. And then she takes up what came to be called the first New World Pandemic, which arose in 1518. And this, we know, uh, wiped out a lot of the Native American population. And she mentions the earliest formal quarantines were a response to the Black Death, between, which between 1347 and 1351, so four years, killed something like a third of Europe and ushered in what became known as the Second Plague Pandemic. As with the first, the second pandemic worked its havoc fitfully. Plague would spread, then abate, only to flare up again. She writes, there's a good deal of debate about why the second pandemic finally ended. One of the last major outbreaks in Europe occurred in Marseille in 1720. But whether efforts at control were effective or not, they often provoked evasion, resistance, and riot. Public health measures ran up against religion and tradition, 
Sound familiar? And of course, they still do. The fear of being separated from loved ones prompted many families to conceal cases. This is in 1720 in France. And in fact, those charged with enforcing the rules often had little interest in protecting the public. And then she takes up cholera. She goes through the fifth pandemic, raging on uh, cholera, that is, in, uh, in Ukraine. The seventh cholera pandemic began in 1961 on the Indonesian island of Sulawesi. And then she concludes, by most accounts, the seventh pandemic is ongoing, that is, of, of cholera. It uh, had its, took its greatest toll in Haiti in uh, 2010. <clears throat> and then she steps back and looks at epidemics in general. Epidemics are, by their very nature, divisive. The neighbor you might, in better times, turn to for help becomes a possible source of infection. The rituals of daily life become opportunities for transmission. The authorities enforcing quarantine become agents of oppression. Time and time again, throughout history, people have blamed outsiders for outbreaks. She, she quotes a historian as, uh, telling the story of what happened to the Jews of Strasbourg during the Black Death. Local officials decided they were responsible for the pestilence uh, they they said that they had poisoned the wells and offered them a choice, convert or die. Half opted to convert, and then the rest, in 1349, were rounded up, taken to the Jewish cemetery, and burned alive. Pope Clement VI issued papal bulls pointing out that Jews, too, were dying from the plague, and that it wouldn't make sense for them to poison themselves, but this didn't seem to have made much difference. There it is, the irrationality, when people are frightened out of their wits of, and their need to find a scapegoat. Sound familiar? <clears throat> in 1349, Jewish communities in Frankfurt, Mainz, and Cologne, Germany, were wiped out. To escape the violence, Jews migrated en masse to Poland and Russia, permanently altering the demography of Europe. Whenever disaster strikes, like right about now, it's tempting to look to the past for guidance on what to do or, alternatively, what not to do. It's been almost 1,500 years since the Justinian plague, and what with Plague, smallpox, cholera, influenza, polio, measles, malaria, and typhus, there are an epidemic number of epidemics to reflect on. The trouble is that for all the common patterns that emerge, there are at least as many confounding variations. During the cholera riots, people blame not outsiders, but insiders. 
It was doctors and government officials who were targeted. Smallpox helped the Spanish conquer the Aztec and Incan empires, but other diseases helped defeat colonial powers. During the Haitian Revolution in 1802, Napoleon tried to retake the French colony with some 50,000 men. So many of his soldiers died from yellow fever that after a year he gave up on the attempt and also decided to sell the Louisiana Territory to the Americans. See how, again, the political consequences of, of, of plagues and pandemics Even the mathematics of outbreaks varies dramatically from case to case. And then she quotes a professor at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, a Professor Kucharski, uh, and the author of The Rules of Contagion, uh, that the differences depend on such factors as the mode of transmission, the length of time an individual is contagious, and the social networks that each disease exploits. And then this professor says, there's a saying in my field, if you've seen one pandemic, you've seen one pandemic. Among the few predictions about COVID-19 that it seems safe to make at this point is that it will become the subject of many histories of its own. Here's another New Yorker article from March 30th of this year um, called Don't Come Any Closer. Uh, and the subtitle is What's at Stake in Our Fables of Contagion, uh, written by Jill Lepore. And uh, it's, a, it's a, a review of uh, several books about contagion, uh, both fiction and nonfiction. She starts off, when the plague came to London in 1665, Londoners lost their wits. They consulted astrologers, quacks, the Bible. They searched their bodies for signs, tokens of the disease, lumps, blisters, black spots. They begged for prophecies. They paid for predictions. They prayed. They yowled. They closed their eyes. They covered their ears. They wept in the street. They read alarming almanacs. One in five Londoners died, notwithstanding the precautions taken by merchants. The butcher refused to hand the cut. The butcher refused to hand the cook a cut of meat. She had to take it off the hook herself, and he wouldn't touch her money. She had to drop her coins into a bucket of vinegar. Bear that in mind when you run out of Purell. And then I'm going to turn to a, uh, a 
short article about the 1940s, that novel from the 1940s called The Plague by Albert Camus. And this is uh, from the New York Times, not the New Yorker. And uh, it's an opinion piece, actually. But I think it says a lot about plagues and pandemics in general, and our own in particular. And this is the author of this is Alain de Botton. <coughs> here's how, here's what he writes. In January 1941, Albert Camus began work on a story about a virus that spreads uncontrollably from animals to humans. There it is again, animals to humans, and ends up destroying half the population of, quote, an ordinary town called Oran on the Algerian coast. The Plague, published in 1947, is frequently described as the greatest European novel of the post-war period. As the book opens, an air of eerie normality reigns. The town's inhabitants lead busy, money-centered, and denatured lives. Then, with the pacing of a thriller, the horror begins. The narrator, Dr. Rue, comes across a dead rat, then another and another. Soon an epidemic seizes Oran, the disease transmitting itself from citizen to citizen, spreading panic in every street. To write the book, Camus immersed himself in the history of plagues. He read about the Black Death that killed an estimated 50 million people in Europe in the 14th century, uh, and then these other ones that I already mentioned a little while ago, as well as the plagues that ravaged cities on China's eastern seaboard during the 18th and 19th century. He was drawn to his theme because he believed that the actual historical incidents we call plagues are merely concentrations of a universal precondition, dramatic instances of a perpetual rule, that all human beings are vulnerable to being randomly exterminated at any time by a virus, an accident, or the actions of our fellow man. or as we say in Zen, the certainty of death and the uncertainty of the time of death. I think that was Dogen, but it could be anyone. It's so simple. The people, the article continues, the people of Oran can't accept this. Even when a quarter of the city is dying, they keep imagining reasons it won't happen to them. They are modern people with phones, airplanes, and newspapers. They are surely not going to die like the wretches of 17th century London or 18th century Canton. And one of the characters in the novel says, it is impossible it should be the plague. Everyone knows it has vanquished from the West. Yes, everyone knew that, Camus adds, 
except the dead. For Camus, when it comes to dying, there is no progress in history, there is no escape from our frailty. Being alive always was and will always remain an emergency. It is truly an an inescapable underlying condition. Plague or no plague, there is always, as it were, the plague. If what we mean by that is a susceptibility to sudden death, an event that can render our lives instantaneously meaningless. You know, we, we say in Buddhism that we all suffer the same terminal illness. It's called life. It begins at birth. And then the, the review continues. This is what Camus meant when he talked about the absurdity of life. Recognizing this absurdity should lead us not to despair, but to a tragic comic redemption, a softening of the heart, a turning away from judgment and moralizing to joy and gratitude. Again, Dogen, I think, said, purpose of Zen practice is to develop a tender heart. Suffering tenderizes us. The author of the review continues, the plague isn't trying to panic us because panic suggests a response to a dangerous but short-term condition from which we can eventually find safety. But there can never be safety, and that is why, for Camus, we need to love our fellow damned humans and work without hope or despair for the amelioration of suffering. Life is a hospice, never a hospital. Very, very potent statement. We're all in this together finding our way and, from a Buddhist perspective, going through it over and over and over again on this wheel of life and death. Life is a hospice, never a hospital. At the height of the contagion, when 500 people a week are dying, a Catholic priest called Panelu gives a sermon that explains the plague as God's punishment for depravity. But Dr. Yu, the other character, has watched a child die and knows better. Suffering is randomly distributed. It makes no sense. It is simply absurd, and that is the kindest thing one can say of it. The doctor works tirelessly to lessen the suffering of those around him, but he is no hero. He says, the character says, this whole thing is not about heroism. It may seem a ridiculous idea, but the only way to fight the plague 
is with decency. I think of our, uh, our first responders and those who aren't on the front line, but keep all this going. The, the grocery workers, delivery people, and others. It may seem a ridiculous idea, but the only way to fight the plague is with decency. Another character asks what decency is. Doing my job, the doctor replies. Eventually, after more than a year, the plague ebbs away. The townspeople celebrate. Suffering is over. Normality can return. But Dr. Ryu knew that this chronicle could not be a story of definitive victory. Camus writes, It could only be the record of what had to be done and what, no doubt, would have to be done again against this terror. The plague, he continues, never dies. It waits patiently in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, handkerchiefs, and old papers for the day when it will once again rouse its rats and send them to die in some well-contented city. Camus speaks to us in our own times not because he was a magical seer who could intimate what the best epidemiologists could not, but because he correctly sized up human nature. He knew, as we do not, that, quote, everyone has it inside himself, this plague, because no one in the world, no one, is immune. Other writers uh, have said that the plague, in, in Camus' novel, The Plague, uh, is the virus of fascism. Remember, this is 1947, right after World War II. No one in the town gives much thought to the rats until it's too late. And few pay sufficient attention to the rats even after it's too late. They, this is their folly. They fancy themselves free, and no one will ever be free so long as there are pestilences. We're getting a little reminder of this, not so little, we're getting a reminder of this pestilence called fascism, or at least uh, autocracy, dictatorship now, not just in our own country, but in other countries, Brazil, uh, Poland, and other European countries to some extent. I'm going to uh, wrap up here with a major shift of tone and uh, read from <coughs> the uh, humor page that appears in every issue of The New Yorker. This is from uh, March 30th of this year. It's at the, the, the page is called Shouts and Murmurs. I bet a lot of you know this. And this one is called Guidelines. And here's how it goes. Starts off, don't panic. These are the two most important words to remember. There is no cause for alarm. The chances of you or someone you know contracting the virus remain extremely small, though you probably will contract the virus at some point. 
Wash your hands. These are the three most important words to remember. We know we just said that. We know we just said that don't panic were the two most important words. But if there were five words to remember, it would be those five. While you are not panicking, take the time to wash your hands again. It's a simple thing. We do, we all do every day. And that doesn't have to change except for the number of times you do it. If you wash your hands, say, an average of five times a day, keep doing that, but add an additional 30 to 40 times a day. It's that simple. There's no magic number, but close to 50 is a good place to be. And don't worry if you do it less than that, though chances are good that if you do it less than that, you will contract the most serious strain of the virus, which can result in death. Again, what are the two to five words we, most re we must remember? Don't panic, wash your hands. That's really all you need to know. A lot. Let's add the words a lot. Wash your hands more than you ever thought a person could wash his or her hands. Even if your hands start to bleed, which they will, it is perfectly normal and not a cause for concern if the backs of your hands begin to get dry or crack or bleed profusely. That's fine. There's no law that says you can't walk around with bloody hands. This isn't complicated. Some have made it sound complicated, but it's not except for the complication of us having no idea where the next breakout area will be. But you don't have to worry. It's a big country, though it does look like the next major outbreak will be very close to where you are right now. If you follow these seven simple words, don't panic, wash your hands a lot, never leave your home, let's add those four, you will in all probability be fine, even though you will likely contract the virus, but will have little memory of contracting it owing to your fever, loss of consciousness, and complete inability to use any part of your body. How much should you not feel the need to panic? This much. You don't need a face mask. Think about that. Think about how safe you are if you can walk around without a face mask. And the reason is that a face mask does absolutely nothing but make you look silly. And by walk around, we mean walk around your home, not outdoors, which without a mask would be akin to suicide. But there's no need to panic, yet. Low-level stress and anxiety are perfectly normal during a global crisis, which this is not. Stress is so normal that most Americans are feeling it right now, which is a perfectly healthy response mechanism. And by healthy, we mean incredibly dangerous, since stress is a leading cause of heart disease. The good news is that if you continue worrying, you can avoid contracting the virus entirely by dying of a premature heart attack. These few smallish changes to your daily life, hand washing, wearing latex gloves, not going out of doors, never touching another living being, don't have to be painful.
Also, where possible, avoid surfaces of any kind. Uh, avoid surfaces of any kind, Trader Joe's products, and the Earth's atmosphere, since all of those things might have been exposed to the virus. Don't touch your face, which is now the most dangerous place in the world. If there are four words to use as a guide to remaining alive during this pandemic, it's these. Don't touch your face. Add them to our list of other words. Don't panic. Wash your hands. A lot. Never leave your home. Don't touch your face. Simple. If you do that, you will have, at best, a 50% chance of living through the night. And that's great news. Question. Is my mouth part of my face and can I brush my teeth if I have washed my hands, donned surgical gloves, unwrapped a new toothbrush, and managed to rinse without touching my lips? The answer is yes, if you have a death wish. What if someone shakes my hand against my will? Uh, don't worry, that happens. It's important to go about your daily life and do the things you normally do, as long as those things involve not leaving your home, ever. And then finally, when we said crisis just then, we certainly didn't mean a global emergency. We merely meant that the world as you knew it is over. But again, there's no need for panic. If there are roughly nine words you should remember, it's these. This will all be over soon, or possibly never. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate The great way of Buddha I vow to attain All beings without number I vow to liberate Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. All beings without number I vow to liberate. Endless blind passions I vow to uproot. Dharma gates beyond measure I vow to penetrate. The great way of Buddha I vow to attain. <clears throat> 